Welcome to Time to Market, a podcast by Lean B2B and SK Murphy, where we share principles, actionable advice, and rules of thumbs for B2B founders. This week, we talk about making tough decisions. We discuss why some decisions are harder to make than others, why it's important to create a decision-making framework for the company, how to think about making the decisions, how to get feedback, and how to evaluate the decisions. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Well, we're back. This is the Time to Market podcast. Today, we want to talk about making the tough calls. One of the keys to startup success is making good decisions, and we're going to look today at a couple of frameworks for that and then share some of our experiences and what we've seen work and not work. Yeah, a lot of founders in these past few years have had to make a lot of really uh, tough decisions with uh, the downturns and funding environment. Uh, so it's been a bit of a, a tougher go for the last few years. So when you think about what constitutes a tough call, what are the elements or aspects of a decision that make it harder? I do think there's a matter of, it's been a little bit beat over a little too much, but the idea that Jeff Bezos has been pushing about reversible versus irreversible distance. So there's some decisions that actually will be very, very difficult to reverse as the company moves forward, especially if it's going fast. It's an important factor to consider that some decision will, to some extent, structure the company moving forward and will not be changeable. I think that's an important part of it. I think as well, to some extent, I think startups, especially fast-growing startups, are decision it's all about the decision-making process to some extent. How effective you're able to make decisions, align the company to go fast in those directions and be able to reassess as you move forward. I think it's very difficult to do this right, but at the same time, it is so critical. I see two things that make startup decisions harder in some ways. One is the need to proceed with limited info because you're small and if you stand still, it's not going to succeed. So you have to move forward based on limited info. And I think often that you may be facing for the first or second time. So it's not the old familiar, it's the new and maybe unknown yeah, or more unknown. Yeah, it's it's always the new problems that you, you didn't foresee or you didn't know could exist that kind of get to you, especially in startups where you're always usually trying to cover new ground. And that uncovers new types of problems. I have made a lot of mistakes and I've worked on many startups and the problems, the unanticipated problems from one startup were very difficult to see coming. You can be well-equipped to understand what are the common patterns and what are the issues, but sometimes because of what you mentioned, like the limited information, because you've just not been there before, because the situation is slightly different, it's very difficult to have clear-cut understanding of what is going to happen or what, what might happen in certain situations. I don't know that I buy into the Bezos framework in terms of irreversible versus reversible because I look at all decisions as the irrevocable commitment of resources. So by definition, at least from my perspective, all decisions are irreversible. But I think some decisions have larger impact and some have smaller impact. And one one thing I've seen is that if in the room, in a small team, it makes sense to say, let's try something, then you can bound things and make a quick decision in the room. I think as it gets larger, or the effects get larger, and you may need to make sure that more people are consulted or involved, 
then Lisa Solomon proposed this three conversation model where you try and make sure you get the problem framed. You've got the right people in the room. You've got the right constraints. And then you agree on the problem. And then from that, you come back and you look at alternatives in a second meeting. And then in the third, you actually make a decision and a plan for going forward. And we've talked about introverts and extroverts. I think that gives the introverts more time to settle their thinking and to share it than if it all takes place in a 45-minute meeting in one room. Now, if it's a small decision, you, you live with it and you live with fine-tuning adjustments as you go. It's kind of a ready-fire steer. Yeah. What have you seen yeah, yeah. work? What have you seen work? Well, so I think there is something to be said about there's certain decisions that you can accept having failure rates there. It's a little bit a way to test somewhat somewhat scale the organization where you can test the decision making of the organization because it's basically a, a machine that you're putting in place where you get that that evaluation cycle built in with within this. I do feel to your point, like if you're mentioning that you don't believe necessarily in reversible versus irreversible decisions, thinking everything is irreversible, I think maybe this hints at the evaluation cycle being the most important thing to some extent. How you are able to make sense of what has worked and how you keep those cycles of evaluation tight enough, you can actually adjust where you're going in as you move forward. One thing that I think a lot about is the OODA loop from John Boyd. So it's observe, orient, decide, and act. And you're gaining most of your momentum in the orientation stage, more or less. So how you make sense of the information, how you make sense of the information that, that's being put out, and how do you make sound decisions based on that. But to some extent, you can view making decisions as an experiment and then the reassessment of whether that worked or whether that actually triggered the right behavior inside the organization is part of the evaluation loop. So, so being able to recognize and readjust based on a past decision is often more important than the actual way that the decision gets made. Oftentimes, however, a lot of organizations will not necessarily take the time to reassess their decision-making process or reevaluate the, the way they make decisions. And that's kind of where you end up building on these irreversible decisions that log the company in certain frame of thinking. I like your proposal or your conceptualization that you're building a machine that is going to function. One mistake I see some founders make is that they don't make their decision rules clear. And so it's enjoyable in some sense for decisions to come to the founding team or executive team or we want to call it, and then you get decisions right away. I had an old boss that ran uh, mobile wireless at Cisco for a while, and he said he had this epiphany. He said, I now realize that every time an easy decision comes to my team, there's been a failure somewhere in the chain because I should only get the decisions that are like 4951. I should get the decisions that are very hard to make. The decisions that are easy, if I see something yeah. that's easy, then either I haven't made my criteria or decision rules clear, or I'm grabbing onto something because I want to feel good about, look, I solved that problem, right? And that's that's not actually what leadership is about. Yeah. You hired people that were more, they were more willing to just delay the, the decision. They were not as assertive as they should be. They were more yes men or yes women than they should have. I think 
there's also that, that heuristic for the founder himself or herself, depending on how they want organization to operate. I think that's one good test. Another way as well is to see how decisive the other, because the, the decision should, to some extent, be adapted to different, different departments in the organization and seeing how they make those decisions and how they evaluate their decision-making process is often indicative of the style of the company and also the ability, their ability to feel like they can actually make decisions. So I think there's just that whole process of evaluating how much leeway people feel they have and how much they are able to actually gain more momentum. There's a pretty good example from war right now about different types of decision-making styles where they're talking about the, the Russian army being very much top down and it's getting, actually getting worse than this. And the Ukrainian army having delegated decision-making to the units based on a set of accepted principles. And you can see that historically through a lot of like a reading on wars and different things like that, that generally outperforms models that are more central. So you do need to have some kind of mechanic that helps communicate the shared values or the shared ideas or the shared principles that help guide decision-making. But you do need some kind of mechanic to reinforce those behavior. And that's often done through culture or through promotions, firings, all these different things. Yeah, I think, I think the concept of pushing the decision down to where the information is, and that also requires that you push resources down to where those guys are. That's a, there's this transformation when the whole team can't fit in one room comfortably, at least around a small table comfortably. And I think to the extent that you can start to push decisions down, you're probably going to stay more nimble than if everything has got to come up, right? Especially now if it's, if it's 30 or 40 or 50 people, then, and, you know, God knows in a thousand, it's even, you know, it's, it's even more. So I do think that's something about making your policies clear, making your, your guidelines clear, and letting lower level guys make mistakes, right? That's what it ultimately comes down to, right? But in those situations, like, so if we take this back to the idea of, of so there's a tough call, like you're, you're involved in a startup, you're involved in an organization, and there's a very difficult choice to be made in the future. So for example, it's not going exactly the way you want to go. Or if you take it back to the other episode previously about the runways is running, running short and you need to decide on an action plan. What would you advise startup funders to look at in terms of making those decisions and making sure that they're able to take the right decision or, or make the best informed decision for the, the organization? So some things, if there's a fire in the building, you have to get people out of the building, right? So that imposes a certain time limit that means you just have to take the best action that you can, right? In the situation you're talking about, my bias is to make sure that I've got the right people in the room. And this might mean actually reaching out to advisors, might meet, reach out to other, other peer entrepreneurs who may have some insights into this and make sure that I'm generating enough alternatives. The decision is often framed as pivot or persevere, right? As a binary choice, right? But the reality is, if you're only looking at two choices, 
and it's a significant decision, you probably haven't done enough to generate enough options to know that you're looking at a rich enough set to get to a good conclusion, right? And so that would be, I would look backward in the process to make sure that we've gotten broad input, we've gotten other eyes on helping us look at the alternatives, and even when the situation is serious, to do a certain amount of deliberation. Yeah, but that that implies that people are are going to be willing to share. So there's going to be a free sharing of different alternatives that people are going to feel are going to be willing to challenge what the leaders in the organization are saying and propose solutions that are maybe counter to what these uh, people believe or what they're trying to advocate in the organization, especially in the time of crisis to some extent. Do you have any any idea of how that can be, to some extent, reinforced that that you're really looking for a, a broader set of options for the organization? There's often going to be a pattern of people just deferring to this current strategy as the right strategy or deferring to not necessarily feeling involved enough in the decision making to really want to offer a perspective that is conflicting with this or maybe a desire not to rock the boat. How do you make sure that you're able to get as wide of a perspective or as rich of a, an option set as you could in those situations? So I think you have to encourage feedback. You have to encourage other ideas. You can't present it as, here's what I think we're going to do, but I'm interested in what other people think we ought to do, right? Because that's what you say when you're trying to let people know, hey, this is what's coming. So yeah, get ready, right? This um, is fake democracy. I will tell you that I managed a team at Cisco of, I don't know, let's say 15 people. And we'd grown rapidly and we were, it was, it was engineering services people. So it was internal service people. And so at one point people were unhappy and I said, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave the room for an hour. And this guy who was one of my kind of supervisors is going to run the meeting. And I want you to agree on things on the board, and we come back, we're going to discuss that agenda and discuss problems that we're going to address as potential root causes for why things are going wrong, right? And I left for, I don't know, 45 minutes now, somebody could come and got me. There were nine things on the board that were quite frank. And we, we walked through it, and I, I, and I didn't, I just said, I really appreciate this. Uh, and then we walked through it, and I said, tell me more. And one of them, the first thing was, we take too much shit, right? And it was like, you're, you're not standing up for us enough, right? And there were some other ones, and we kind of walked through it. And so I think you have to create a situation where you make it very clear that you're open for input. And that when people give you input, you don't immediately go into objection handling, but well, Etienne, I'm sorry, but yeah. you don't really understand how hard my job is. And, you know... I mean, you're telling me this, but uh, you don't really understand, right? So you have to actually acknowledge what they're saying, write it down, and give it some time to settle, right? And I think that's, you know, that's very different from the common portrayal of the dynamic chief executive. We were just talking about Elizabeth Holmes, right? You know, you must make this work, you know, it's like regardless of the laws of physics. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So your team has generated, there's this, this moment of major decision. Your team has generated different options. So how would you go about making the best decision and 
making it work within the organization. So then that, that, that took a period of weeks and we had different plans. So it turned out there wasn't a single route. There, it wasn't like the Gordian knot. You could like hit it with the sword and all your problems go away, yeah. right? There were, yeah. there, were, there were things that were going wrong. One fundamental mistake I remember that I had made was that I decided we were going to fund out of our own budget a test vehicle to verify certain of the parts and components and things that we were doing. I'd always used the prototype as that vehicle. And so invariably, there would be part problems on the prototype. And then the engineers are pissed off. How come you guys can't get everything right? Yada, yada, yada. So we, act, we actually figured out that it was only going to be a couple thousand bucks. And we could do that weeks before the prototype hit. And we could take out a category of error that have been causing slips. And so it was, it was, so they felt like we were actually willing to, and they were correct. I mean, it would have been, it had been my mistake, my stupidity, right? Overconstrained the problem. And I realized it was worth spending a couple grand six weeks early to prevent these problems. I guess the other thing I would suggest is as leaders, sometimes we have mental constraints around a problem that if you're willing to listen to other people, you realize that you've artificially constrained the solution space or the opportunities or the option space. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that's people in general. Like we, we often tend to take in terms of solutions as opposed to a more definition of the problem space, for example. Right. I do think as well, there's, there's some conflict in terms of how founders typically think versus employees tend to think as well. Like there's more ownership on the founder side as well. So there tends to be maybe some conflict in terms of like perception or the type of decision that they feel that they can make that that can trigger some some difficulty there. So how would you make that decision and how would you get it implemented within this organization? So you have a team of, let's say, 25, 30, 40, 40 employees. Well, we, we broke it up into multiple objectives. Ultimately, came a pretty complicated project plan. And we spun off several things to make it happen. So that was, that was more straightforward because the team was used to executing. I will give you one more that was interesting. I heard a talk by this guy, Sanjay, who started this company called Denali, which was a big success in EDA. And he said, whenever I heard at Denali that we had a sales problem, I immediately challenged the engineers to what could they do to address it because there's this there's this natural bifurcation where they say we've built this beautiful thing it's a shame the sales guys can't sell it right <laughs> and it and it turns out that by taking ownership by forcing them to take ownership of the problem they could often make modifications to the product that had been making it much harder to sell it and so i think sometimes we draw these lines between groups or functions and say you know, Etienne, the, the headlight broke on your side of the car, so you've got to pay for it, right? I mean, it's like, it's like, well, it doesn't quite work that way, right? So part of it, I think, is if you can get the folks together and look at it more cross-functionally or more holistically, sometimes you can, you can get an orbit around it and see something that is a way forward. But ultimately, you need to put in place project plans, deadlines, commitments, and to your point, evaluation points, checkpoints to make it all happen. It's not enough to announce the meeting. Okay, that's a great idea. We're going to do that and then leave the room and expect something to happen, right? That's not going to, 
Okay, okay. But so what would you recommend in terms of, of being able to to manage that evaluation cycle? Like what kind of time frame would, would you be looking at? And how would you make sure that you're getting the output that you were expecting from the decision? In that case, we would have to have intercepted systems that were in progress. And we would say, okay, so when we when we do the post-project assessment on the prototype build, then we'll see, did doing this separate early build catch problems? And in particular, if our test build found problems in the products, then we, we would be more confident that we at least caught those problems early before we slowed the whole project down. So I think there's ways to identify kind of natural dependency points, natural intersections where I think people also make this mistake when they're thinking about innovating on a process or an approach, right? And so you have to draw the timeline of the old way and say, okay, we know we can execute this with these known problems at this cost in this time frame. And if you're going to place a bet, you've got to do something which gets ahead of that so that if your thing fails, you can still cross over to plan A. And even though it's not as good as your new plan B was supposed to be, it, it's better than it turned out to be, right? So I think this is more looking at kind of timelines and dependencies. Um, okay, okay. I think there's two things there. I think there's, there's a, an assessment of the, the specific uh, tough call that you're making, this specific decision that you're making. But there's also an assessment of how the organization reacts to it. There, there's these two layers where one is your overarching decision-making model, like the way you are deciding when things are difficult or deciding when things need to be discussed as a group or discussed in a, in a specific process like this. But there's also the specific of that situation that needs to be evaluated. And I think there's probably some kind of recognition that they are inter intertwined to some extent where where the way you make decisions there should be getting better, or the way you're able to make sense of the world and make, make better decisions, I should be getting better. And that specific decision as well should be reevaluated and how it impacts the company. Do we have any specific takeaways? Maybe we can come out of the discussion on this. So I think you're making some good points. Part of it is, if there's a lack of goodwill, if people that are going to be affected by the decision aren't consulted, then it's less likely that it's actually going to roll out and work, right? So, and as the organization gets larger, so when everybody fits around one table, then more or less people will speak up or they can figure it out, right? But sometimes you're rolling something out and you realize, oh, we never told those guys, right? And that turns out to be you know, the nail that you need for the shoe that we need for the horse. And it's like, oh, that's bad, right? So that'd be but one I, thing. I, I would just say map who's going to be affected. Make sure you involve them. Yeah, yeah. I think as well, communicating the reasons for making decisions, especially at a small startup, I think that else will create a solution about, or a framework for how you think about decision as a founder, but also help communicate what are the, the criteria, what is the way of thinking, uh, about different topics. And that can help, especially more junior staff or people that may not be as, as used to key decision-making to, to start to, to adopt some of these principles, adopt some of these ideas. Uh, and it also helps at the same time prevent to start 
uh, inventing their reasons for things, which can create politics, which can create, uh, can kind of bring the, uh, the organization in different directions. So really communicating the reasons why the decisions got made and maybe even share some of the alternatives that were considered. So you can kind of help people refine their model, their mental models for how the organization is thinking about things or should be thinking about this. I, li- I like that because you're actually, you're recognizing you've got two problems. You've got to survive and you've also got to improve the decision-making capability at all levels of the organization. Yeah, maybe I, well, maybe we make this as the third, third takeaway there. There is two problems there. There's the problem of how that decision-making process is in the long run. So the operating, operating model, the organization, how it makes decision, but there's also the specific situations. And sometimes that those can come into conflict. For example, if you are being a bit of a dictator in the specific situation, that might reflect and impact the way communications, the decisions are made moving forward. I think most of the really difficult problems occur at the conflict or the trade-off between two values. So we want low cost, but we want high quality. We want low cost, but we want time to market, right? And so, yeah. so, so there's no, that's a dilemma. There's no right answer there, right? Yeah. So maybe we have one last takeaway for this one? Well, I think you have to write down the reasons why you did it and your checkpoints and come back and revisit them. That it's less about the decision itself, more about the process you used, and more about making sure that you follow up. There's this quote that's actually Ian Gilmore, although it's credited to Churchill. He says, no matter how beautiful the strategy, occasionally you should look at the results. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's a good good place to end this discussion. So thanks for uh, listening. Or you can uh, reach out to us and give us feedback at LeanB2B on Twitter or SKMurphy on Twitter. And we will see you guys in the next episode. We hope you enjoyed this discussion on making tough calls. If you did, please leave a like, leave a rating, leave a review. You can share it with others, share it with other founders. And we will see you next week for more actionable advice. <laughs>